0: Good morning, good to see you all, hi. Happy December, it's almost Christmas. Uh, my name is Ben, and I get to share the word with you guys today, and I'm super excited about that. Today is the first Sunday of something we call Advent. Uh, it's it's sort of like our, our Christmas time, like our, our lead-up to Christmas. Advent is sort of a season that, that the church has been celebrating for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it's a time of, of looking back on, on the coming of Jesus and what that meant and what that does in our lives, and also looking forward to what Jesus ultimately wants to do in human history and in our lives. So it's sort of like looking back in gratitude and looking forward in anticipation. Uh, So it's a season of of, uh, remembering and a season of waiting, of sort of faithful waiting for what God wants to do in the future. And that's sort of what we're going to talk about today is this idea of waiting, the the in-between time. And I also want to tell you that if, if, uh, if you want to follow along uh, with sort of this Advent time with us as a church, we have this thing available for you, the Advent Reader. Uh, there's a few copies on the, on the table at the back of the Auditorium and it's just daily readings to help us really lean into this season of celebrating what Jesus has done and what Jesus will do. Um, there, I think there are like 20 copies left back there because uh, we keep printing more of them, and you keep taking them, which is awesome, but we just didn't <laughs> expect it. So uh, if you don't get one today and you want one, you can come by the church office tomorrow or any time this week and grab one. Uh, but the first reading starts today, and you can follow along all the way to Christmas um, I'm actually, I'm actually really encouraged at how many people want one of these because it means that we are a congregation that is hungry for the word of God. So I'm grateful for that. Um, and I'll put this one back there so you can take it too. There's one more. Uh, So, today, we're going to sort of kick off the season of Advent by talking about um, sort of what it it means to wait, what it means to wait with anticipation and be faithful and wait on the Lord and sort of this active, faithful waiting that we're called to. And we're going to do that by looking at Matthew chapter 1. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Matthew chapter 1. I was giving Pastor Duane a hard time this morning, and I said, you yet again assigned me the most famously boring Christmas passage there is in the Bible. Uh, I I was half joking because I sort of chose it. I had the option. But uh, today what we're going to look at is the beginning of Matthew, which is really a list of names. This is the genealogy of Jesus, and, uh, and a lot of these names are going to seem quite foreign to us. Uh, but I actually chose this passage because I think there's a lot to it. I think it's uh, meaningful and exciting if we have ears to hear it. So the first thing we need to note is that Matthew, when he wrote the book of Matthew, he was writing the story of Jesus for an audience that was slightly different than us. He was writing it for first century Jewish people who had sort of been raised in the Jewish tradition, raised as Israelites, as the people of God, and had, had, been, had been hearing about their history and the generations past all of their lives. And so for them, when they hear this genealogy story, and they sort of hear this list of names, every single name that, that was read would just ring a bell in some way, and, and there would be a story connected to it, and it would sort of uh, br- bring about, conjure something in their mind, in their memory. For us, we might, if, especially if we're, we're familiar with the Bible, we might recognize a few of the names, and if we're not familiar with the Bible, we still might recognize one or two names, but maybe not, maybe not all of them. So for us, when we read this passage, we sort of think, wow, that's boring, why, would, why do we need to know all of these names? but for the people that Matthew was writing for, each thing that he says is deeply meaningful. I believe that there is no wasted word in the Bible. And so I think that that as we sort of unpack this together, we're going to find out that this is actually deeply meaningful if we have ears to hear it. But before we sort of pick it apart and highlight certain verses and certain names in this genealogy, I'm going to do something perhaps a little bit ill-advised, and I'm going to read the entire thing out loud right here, right now. And I thought about, this and I was like, I think it's important to read the scripture in its entirety before we start picking it apart. Uh, And I also was thinking about this and I thought, well, you know, this is a room full of uh, alert, awake, adult people who can listen to 17 verses of names read out loud. So are you ready? We're going to do this, okay? Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says this, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the mother of Rahab, Boaz, or whose mother was Rahab, Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. You're a third of the way through. We're almost there. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile in Babylon. Are you recognizing any names thus far? We have one more third to go. We're almost there. You're doing great. After the exile to Babylon, Jecontin was the father of Shaltiel. Shaltiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, Abiad, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor the father of Zadok. Zadok the father of Achim. Akim the father of Eliad. Eliad the father of Eleazar. Eleazar the father of Mathan. Mathan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who was called the Messiah. Thus... There were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. We made it. You did it. Well done. Congratulations. I wonder if a few of those names rung a bell for you. Maybe if you're super familiar with the Bible, a bunch of them did. Maybe just a couple if you're not super familiar. I'll bet even if you're not a Bible person, uh, there were a few things in there that, that sort of struck a chord or rung a bell, right? Maybe King David or, or maybe Abraham, right? There's a few names in there that we recognize that conjure something. For, for Matthew's original readers, a lot of these names had a lot of weight to them. They had a whole story attached, a whole history. They meant something. And so while for us this might seem like a bunch of useless information, and then this sort of wrap up statement that he makes about 14 generations, 14 generations, what is that all about? For the people listening to to him originally, the people he's writing for, this is deeply, deeply meaningful. So we're going to sort of pick out a few different points of this and see what Matthew is trying to get at. So let's go back to verse 1. It says this, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew right away wants us to know a few things about Jesus. He's going to spend 28 chapters telling us the story of Jesus. He has a few things he wants us to know right away. First, that Jesus has a genealogy. That is, Jesus is not just, you know, God come down from the clouds, but Jesus exists in human history. Jesus has ancestors, has a whole family tree, he is born, he lives a human life in real time and space. This is really important for us to recognize because um, I think we, we imagine, I, th- I think it's easy for us as we talk about our faith to sort of start to get this concept of our faith as this sort of in the clouds, ethereal thing, as if our faith is only about the doctrinal statements or, or that our faith is only about this certain list of things that we agree to. But our faith is actually founded on a real person who actually existed in human history, who actually did certain things and said certain things, and certain events happened in human history. And up to this point in in the story of, of the world, no faith had ever claimed to be about a God who was actually breaking into real human history in real time and space. In fact, we, we, we don't even have that much of that concept today. The, the many faith systems and belief systems and ways of thinking about spirituality in the world, they're all sort of like in the clouds, not really down to earth. Not really, and, and Jesus sort of breaks into that and he says, no, this is actually about a real God who is really involved, really breaking into real human history in a real time, in a real place, is a real person. So he wants us to know Jesus has a genealogy. We're going to learn more about what that genealogy looks like here in a minute. He also wants us to know that that according to uh, what Matthew believes, that Jesus is this Messiah. He calls Jesus the Messiah. Now, Messiah is a Hebrew word that his first century Jewish readers would have understood immediately. It means anointed one. Hard, you could sort of think of like chosen one, like not, not really like Harry Potter chosen one or like maybe, maybe Harry Potter, but the chosen one, anointed one, right? The, this sort of like God's special anointing is on this person. And this was a concept that had been played out in Jewish history among, among the prophets and the writers of the Old Testament for centuries, generation after generation after generation, had talked about Messiah. This idea that God was going to send someone to not only redeem the people of Israel in their sort of current uh, time and place climate, right, if they were in slavery, he would be like redeeming them from slavery, he'd be helping them build their kingdom, the political redemption, but also would redeem them from the deepest brokenest, most broken brokenest most broken places in their hearts. And so they were looking for this Messiah, this, this leader who would lead them into God's future for them, both in the world and in a spiritual sense. This, this Messiah was going to repair the breach that had happened between human beings and God and eventually repair and deal with the problem of sin itself. They were looking for Messiah, anointed one, and they were waiting. They were waiting, they were praying, they were hoping. So what Matthew was saying is this Jesus who was born in human time and space, has a whole family tree, was born and grew up in this specific place and time, this Jesus is the anointed one, the chosen one, the one we've been waiting for to initiate God's work in this world. And then he also wants to call him the son of David. We'll learn about that here in a moment. Why is he called the son of David? And the son of Abraham. He's connecting Jesus to this earlier story. In fact, look at the second verse. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. So Matthew is telling us that this story, this sort of these patriarchs of the faith, right? If you've been around the church a while, these names sound familiar. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These sort of originators of the people of God. The first people to whom God promised himself. And they had this covenant relationship where God promised himself to Abraham and Abraham promised himself to God and they became the people of God. And this is sort of a reference back to to chapter 12 of the book of Genesis, right at the beginning of the human story, when God says to Abraham, I am going to bless you, and through you all nations will be blessed, Matthew connects Jesus to that promise, to not just say, you will be a blessed people. You and your family, right? You're the in crowd. You Israelites, you Hebrews, you Jewish people, you're the in crowd. But he's saying, I'm also going to send Messiah. And a big part of Messiah's job, according to all the teachers and prophets of the Jewish people, a big part of the Messiah's job was to take the blessing of Abraham and share it with the world. To break it outside of just the people of God so that anyone, anywhere, in any time, in any place, could have an intimate, deep, uh, relationship to God, a connection that could not be broken, was to, was to take this, this sort of people of God blessing and bring it to the entire world. It was part of Messiah's job. And so what Matthew was saying is that promise we received way back at the beginning is now coming to fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is God has been working on this since day one. So often, I think, as 21st century Western people, we think of ourselves sort of as a vacuum, sort of like my choices only affect me, right? Don't, they don't really affect anyone else, and, and my, my choices originate with me. They have nothing to do with the people who came before me, right? I am my own person. I create my own self, my own life. What we don't realize is that we actually stand on the shoulders of generations and generations before us. As, as Americans, we stand on the shoulders of generations and generations of people who built this nation. As believers, as Christians, we, we stand on the shoulders of generations and generations of people who have been faithfully serving and seeking the Lord all their lives. In every sphere of life, we are connected to this great history, this great lineage. And what, what Matthew's trying to say is that God has been working since the time of Abraham. God has been preparing the way for Jesus so that Jesus doesn't just show up and go, hey, I'm the Messiah, and everyone's like, what's Messiah, right? Right? He's been working since the time of Abraham to start building in his promise, weaving in his promise and his plan into the world. God has been at work much longer than than we can realize. In fact, this is important for us to know today, I think. To know that God is at work even before we can see what he's up to. God is at work even before we can see what he's up to. So often in life, we, we get to a point where we realize God has moved and we look back and we realize he's been moving the whole time. So when we're in the waiting place, when we're in the place where it's like, is God moving? Where is he leading? What's he up to? We get to choose to believe, to trust that he is at work even if we can't see what he's up to yet because God was already laying the foundations for his Messiah all the way back in Abraham's time. And then we have this list of names, uh, verse 3 through verse 5. We have this list of names, sort of some early people of God. And there's just a few names that that sort of stick out to me that I want to point out. Okay? The first is in verse 3, Judah and Tamar. If you have read the book of Genesis or have been around the church, you may know that the, the story of Judah and Tamar is the one that preachers skip over when they're preaching through Genesis. It's a very uncomfortable story. It's not a nice story. Okay, I notice people like Rahab, who was not even a Jewish person, was a prostitute who hid Jewish spies when they were entering the promised land. I notice people like Ruth, who was a Moabite, who came to live among the Israelites as a very impoverished person and rely upon their generosity. I notice names like these because they are not people you expect to find in the lineage of God's Messiah. They're not, Jesus does not have an impressive pedigree. He has a pretty messy family tree. These people that we just mentioned are spiritual outsiders. Culturally, they're different. Spiritually, they're different. They're not sort of the in crowd. They haven't been raised in generations and generations of faithful Jewish people. They are the outsiders. Many of us in this room feel in one way or another like outsiders, cultural outsiders, spiritual outsiders. We're not part of the in crowd of church. We haven't been to church enough. Whatever it is, we feel like outsiders in, one, in our family, in our, in, our, in our communities, in our schools, in our, in our churches, whatever. We feel like outsiders. And what this tells me is that God delights to take outsiders and use them in the center of his plan. God loves to take outsiders, or, or, or as Jesus tells us, he loves to take the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Those who think they're in, God loves to take those who think they're out to make a point, to prove that it's God's power working, that it's God's power moving the story forward. So if you are here today and you feel in one way or another like an outsider, know that you're exactly the kind of person God delights to use in his plan. And As I look over the, sort of this whole genealogy, all 17 verses, I noticed some other groups of people that don't seem like they belong, uh, and, and specifically groups of people who struggle with, with, um, with certain sins. I noticed two main sins. A lot of the people listed in, in this uh, genealogy are famous for sins that they committed, things that they did that were not part of what God wanted them to do. The first one that I noticed, the main one, is idolatry. A lot of the kings listed in verses 7 through 11, a lot of the kings, they're famous for being kings who practiced idolatry. What is idolatry? It's taking allegiance that is owed to God and giving it to something else. In many of these cases, other gods. And we look at that and we're like, oh, idolatry, how silly that you would give your allegiance, your time, your energy, your money. To something that was made by human hands, a piece of stone, a, you know, a carved god. How silly that you would give allegiance, time, money, energy to something that is made by human hands. Wait a minute, is there anything that we give our time, allegiance, money to that is made with human hands? I think there's many things. In first service, when I said that, somebody raised up their phone. But I think that's not the only thing. There are many things that we give our allegiance to when that allegiance is is deserved by God. It is owed to God. And anything we give our allegiance to more than to God or put our trust in more than God is an idol. It's idolatry. And why does God put idolatrous people in the genealogy of his Messiah, Jesus? I think it's because he's trying to tell us this. God will bring history to his desired ends. He will do it. Why? Because he is God. And even if we choose to trust in other things, he will still move history to his desired ends. We cannot stop it. He will still do what he wants to do, and we can choose to be in that, part of that, participating in that, or against it by giving our allegiance to other things. I think it's so easy for me and I think it's so easy for us as 21st century humans to think of God, especially as Christians, we think of God as a big part of our story, whereas what God actually offers us is to be a small part of his big story. I think so often that God is just a big part of my story until I realize that I'm just a small part of God's big story, that God is leading the universe somewhere. He's leading all of human history somewhere. And then I get to choose to be a part of that or not. And just say, God, bless my idolatrous efforts instead. I think he puts these people in here to show that he is leading history somewhere, even if we are not on board with it. And so we can choose. We can choose to be like the faithful kings listed or like the idolatrous ones. And then the other thing I noticed, the other group of people I noticed that don't sort of belong are people who are famous for, their story includes, sexual sin. There's a lot of them. There's prostitutes. We're going to find out in a minute. There's a king. There's a lot of people in this story who struggle with sexual sin. And I think that, that God puts that in there as well on purpose because uh, of all the, the different things that human beings can engage in, all the different sins that we can, that we can sort of give ourselves to, uh, there seem to be none more destructive than sexual sin. You'll notice that all, we're going to find out about what in a moment here. But all the stories uh, in this genealogy that include sexual sin also are stories of immense pain and, and stories in which lives are destroyed. Sometimes, literally, people's sexual sin leads to death in this, in this genealogy, just the stories represented here. And I think God wants us to know that no matter how destructive our choices, No matter how deep in we get, no matter how deeply we sell ourselves to sin, no matter how many lives, including our own, get damaged in the process, if we give ourselves to God in humility, in the midst of our sin, he can take something that is worse than we even realize and turn it around and use it for his story. What I think he's trying to tell us is that while our sin is bad, it's worse than we know, that there is no one and nothing too far gone that if offered to God, he won't turn it around and use it. Why? Is it because our badness isn't bad? No, it's because God is so good. It's because God is so good and so faithful. It would be easy to read this story about all these human lives and the different ways they lived their lives and make it a story about us. But I think that this genealogy is meant to be a story about how good and faithful God is in accomplishing his purposes in a broken world with broken people. So I think that, that, that Matthew includes all these people who, who struggle with sexual sin because he knows that that's such a destructive thing that it destroys lives, and yet we can see that when people offer themselves in the middle of the carnage they've created, when they offer themselves to God, God can turn it around and use it for his glory to accomplish his purposes and ultimately to redeem the world. There's nothing and no one too far gone that God can't turn it around and use it for his purposes. And then in verse 6, it says, Jesse was the father of King David, David the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. That's so interesting, right? Solomon's mother had been Uriah's wife. But wait, I thought David was the father of Solomon. Correct. This is that famous story of Bathsheba, another famous name where King David saw a woman and desired her, so he used his kingly power to have her husband killed so that he could take his wife. This is King David. King David was considered to be a man after God's own heart. The scripture tells us that. A man very close to the heart of God. In fact, King David was talked about in the Old Testament as a messiah. An anointed one. In fact, when King David was around, there were many prophets and priests wondering, is this the Messiah? King David was awesome. King David was an amazing civic leader who led his kingdom well, with humility, with wisdom, and led them into prosperity. He was also a prophet in that he spoke the words of God to the people. He heard from the Lord and he shared that with the people and he guided the people spiritually. He was also a priest in that he mediated between people and God. He reflected the heart of God to the people and the heart of the people he pleaded before God. He was prophet, priest, and king. He did all three very well and people went, is this the Messiah? Is this the one that's going to lead us into our future as a nation and our spiritual future with God? Is this the one? And the answer ultimately was no, it's not. Why? Because even David, who was so close to the heart of God, so deeply connected, even David could not master his own heart, could not master his own proclivities towards sin. He couldn't deal with the fundamental bentness and brokenness of his own heart. And I think this is so important for us to understand because it tells us that even the best of the best, our best civic leaders, our best church leaders, our best teachers, our best whatever, even the best of the best at following Jesus cannot save themselves, cannot be the solution to our deepest need. Only the Messiah, not a Messiah like David, only the Messiah could ever save us. ever restore what has been broken and so David was sort of considered to be this Messiah that was almost the Messiah he was real close he he, when he showed up people wondered and then it turns out oh no wait no he really wasn't because there were all these other issues that he had and so when they started to talk about God's Messiah that was going to come after the time of David they started saying this Messiah will be the David that David could never be this Messiah will be the king that David almost was This Messiah will lead us beyond even what our best king in our history ever did. That's what this Messiah will be. He was going to to sit, as they would say, that he would sit on the throne of David. He would be the David that David never was able to be. And so they begin to wait. And right after the time of David, actually, the kingdom splits in half. There's a northern and southern kingdom in Israel, and they start fighting with each other, and it leaves them vulnerable to attack. And in fact, in verse 11 of chapter 1, it says, Josiah, that was the father of Jeconia and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. What? The exile to Babylon? It's not something you expect to hear either in the story of God. That God's people are taken as slaves into Babylon. They, they are for generations, are an enslaved people, oppressed in Babylon. And how did they get there? They got there by not listening to God. They got there by doing the things he told them not to do and not doing the things he told them to do. They got there because they left themselves vulnerable, because they were not following what God had commanded. They got themselves into the mess of slavery. And I'm sure, not, I'm sure because it's, there's record of it in the scriptures, that at that time there were many people saying, Game over. God tried, we failed, we're enslaved, he's done with us. Game over. But what they had forgotten was that God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. There are many of us who have uh, specific places in our life, or maybe our life as a whole, where it just feels like game over. I'm in a mess, and I've got myself into this mess, and surely God is done with me even when you are in exile god is moving even when you have gotten yourself into a mess that you cannot possibly get yourself out of god is preparing you for rescue he is preparing way for his messiah to come in your life where does it feel like game over in your life that's precisely where god wants to move and where if we wait patiently and faithfully with him he will He will prepare us, and he will bring rescue. So even through the exile in Babylon, God is moving his story forward. He is bringing his people to a place where the Messiah can come. And then look at verse 16. Skip down to verse 16. It says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Mary and Joseph. Maybe you have have a, a manger scene, a little creche that you set up that has Mary and Joseph in it. Let me tell you about Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph to us, we're like, Mary and Joseph, we know those names, right? There are movies about them. We have little action figures of them. We love them. Yeah, you never thought about your crush scene as action figures, did you? You're welcome. Uh, that's all you'll be able to see now. Uh, we, yeah, we love Mary and Joseph, right? But for the people reading this... They would have been like, as as they read through the, the, this uh, this genealogy, the original audience that Matthew was writing for, they'd be like, "Yes, I know that name. I know that name. That story. Yep, 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 yep. I remember that one. Remember that one. I remember that one." And Mary and Joseph, they'd be like, "Who? Who's Mary and Joseph?" And you'd say, "Oh, well, well, Mary and Joseph. Uh, he he was a carpenter. He was a what?" A carpenter was like a tradesperson, but like the, the, bottom, the, the bottom rung, one of the bottom rungs of the totem pole of, of the tradespeople. It was not a highly praised job in that day. He was, he was a carpenter. They'd be like, oh, that's interesting. And who was Mary? Oh, she was a village girl. Oh. Uh, from what village? Nazareth. Nazareth? Nazareth was like the slummy outskirts that nobody really wanted to go to. So there's this list of these great figures of the faith who have sort of become uh, become icons throughout the story of the Hebrew people. And then Mary and Joseph, the little nobodies, the the little who's that's. They're not part of the who's who's, they're part of the who's that's. And I want you to know that these are the kinds of people God delights to use. Read the Bible. Every time God's spirit moves and he moves people in a big way, it's always through the most unlikely, small-time, sometimes really awkward person. And you may be sitting here going, I'm not really that gifted. I don't really have the gifts, right, that other people have. I'm not gifted at music or at preaching or teaching kids in Sunday school. I'm not really gifted. I'm not gifted at sharing my faith. I'm, not, uh, I'm, I'm, kind, of, I'm kind of an ordinary humdrum Kind of person, unremarkable kind of person. I want you to know that you're exactly the kind of person God delights to use. He loves, he, he look, look read, read church history. Every time there's a great move of God, a great revival, the great awakening in America, or a- really any, any great revival that you read about in church history, who's it begun by? The most unlikely, unremarkable, oftentimes socially awkward, strange, like not the person you would expect. If you are sitting here going, God can probably not use me because I don't have the gifts, you're exactly who God delights to use in a big way to bring his story forward. He uses Mary and Joseph, for goodness sake. Nobody's from Nazareth. And now we all have figurines of them in our homes. That's who God delights to use. I think Matthew is trying to tell us something about how God brings his Messiah. This is not the lineage you expect the anointed one to have. And then he says this in verse 17. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. That's so interesting. Uh, First of all, it's the third time that, that Matthew's called him the Messiah. He really wants us to know, this is the one we have waited for. The deepest longings of our hearts are finally being met in Jesus, and 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. That's kind of, for us, that's kind of like, thank you for that information. I'm glad you noticed that. I hadn't noticed it. Thank you for telling me, right? What's the point? For the, the people that he's writing for originally, the first century Jewish people, these numbers would have would have meant something. Um, in in the in the Hebrew language, each letter is assigned a numeric value, which means each word and specifically each name has a total numeric value. And the, these numbers and names were sort of this symbolism of it was was a big deal at the time. It was sort of like God communicating with people in, in the terms they're used to communicating, right? He's like, okay, you guys like the the symbols and the numbers things, so I'll do that for you, okay? And, uh, and, and, so, and so the name David has a, numeric, a total numerical value of 14. And so for them, hearing this, what they are hearing is uh, that, that this is the, the 14, 14, 14. This is the David that David could never be because this is really David. Right? This is the David, David, David. <laughs> this is, this is the, everything we wished that David was, but he wasn't because he was just a person. Everything we wished that David could be, but he, but he wasn't because he wasn't God in the flesh. That's who this is. This is the, the one who can finally sit on David's throne and and lead like like he couldn't lead. And be a prophet the way he couldn't be a prophet, and be a priest the way he couldn't be a priest. This is the one who couldn't do what David could could couldn't who could do what David couldn't do for us because David was just a man. So, so Matthew's really like hammering it home, and he's sort of pointing out, like, look, look at this genealogy, look at this numerology, look at all this stuff. It's all pointing to Jesus as God's Messiah. It's like all these all these marks of human history and symbolism point to Jesus as the one we've been waiting for to fulfill the deepest longings of our hearts. God could not have made it any clearer to us. So often I hear people say, Yeah, I like Jesus, but but believing that he's the only way to God that's so exclusive. And, I, and I, my response to that is, well, if there is a God, and he wants us to, to get to know him, he's going to say, this is the way you get to know me. He's going to like put all these arrows. He's gonna, I believe that's what he's done in Jesus. He's saying, wherever you come from, whatever you're part of, whatever your history and your culture and whatever, religion you were raised in, whatever, I want you to know that I want to have a relationship with you. And the way you do that is right here through Jesus. Look, I've pointed every arrow right towards Jesus. And it's sort of like when somebody gives you their phone number and you want to get a hold of them. So you throw the phone number away and you start dialing random numbers and you go, that's so exclusive of them to only have the one phone number. If you want to get to know God, he has told you the way, and every arrow, even the numbers in the names, every arrow is pointing to Jesus. He is the way to finally experience the fulfillment of the deepest longings of our hearts. He is God's anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is is the answer. So Matthew is really trying to make sure that this point goes home. He's like drilling it home to these people who, who are seeing, reading this through this first century Jewish lens. He's really just using everything he can to help them understand that this is who Jesus is. He's the Jewish Messiah. He's the promised one. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's going to repair the, the brokenness that has come between God and human beings. He's going to reverse our heart, give us a new heart so we can finally serve and love God with freedom. He's finally going to do it. But what about in the meantime? Think about it. 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. That is a long time. It's a long time to wait for God's Messiah. It's a long time to wait for rescue. Why does he wait so long? I want to jump over to Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. And we're actually going to pull this apart next week, so I don't want to camp on it too long, but I just want to look at the first phrase of Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. It says this, when the fullness of time had come, and this is a this, this different translation than I've been using this morning. This is the English Standard Version. But when the fullness of time had come, and then Paul goes on to say here, uh, Jesus came to save us, to make us sons and daughters of God, to give us a, a share in the inheritance of Jesus. Like, he just goes on to explain the gospel in a really cool way. And you're going to find that all out next week. But this first phrase, I really just want to point out, when the fullness of time had come. Think about time. As 21st century Western people, we have what's called a monochronic view of time. Did you know that? You have a monochronic view of time. You learn something new about yourself every day. Uh, what that basically means is we view time as a limited resource. There, th- there, it will run out. That's why we say time is money. That's why we spend our time. That's why we protect our time, because we view time as a limited resource to be spent. And, and I think that, 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 that's fine, right? That's fine, as long as we understand that there's this whole other view of time, which is, which is sort of like the, the time that God often operates in, which is is, is, is this the right time? Is this the right time? See, see, our monochronic view of time makes us obsessed with instant results. Obsessed. Which is why when a new diet comes out that promises to get fit in four days, we're like, I'm there. It makes tons of money because we want instant results. Which is why we love our cell phones because we can find out anything and communicate with anyone like that. The fullness of time means after the waiting, after the time is really ready. It's almost a meta, it almost it conjures the picture in, in my mind of like pregnancy, right? Waiting. For nine months, for, some, for some, a person to be created, a person to be grown before the fullness of time has really come for, for, for birth to come. And so, this fullness of time is this idea that God knows when we are ready, God knows when it is time. God has been preparing his people for 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. He's been preparing his people to make them ready for rescue. If you are in a place where you are waiting, where you're going, I love the, all this stuff about Jesus, and it's great that he's the Messiah, and it's wonderful, it's great. But where is he now? If you're in a time when you cannot find the presence of God, when it seems like you're in exile and you got yourself there, if you're in a time when you can't see any possible way that God could use you because you don't have the gifts, if you're in a time of waiting, know that God could very well be preparing you for rescue. That when the time has fully come, when the fullness of time is complete, that he will come into your life in a surprising and powerful way and bring his Messiah. And so in the meantime, we choose to wait faithfully. That's a huge part of what Advent is about. Trusting and waiting faithfully. Not passively like, are you going to show up yet, God? But waiting, leaning into the Lord, praying, following, asking for guidance, reading the word, continuing to be faithful in the waiting while we wait for rescue to come because God is waiting for the fullness of time to send rescue into our lives. There's a quote I want to share by a guy named Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. He was a Uh, a jesuit priest in the 20th century and also a paleontologist because he could be i guess and uh, he has this great quote that i would love to share with you all it's a pretty famous one that that he has um, this is just a segment of it but he says this above all trust in the slow work of god we are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay we should like to skip the intermediate stages We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new, and yet it is the law of all progress that it is made by passing through some stages of instability, and that it may take a very long time. Give our Lord, this is the part I really want us to hear, give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading you, and accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading, even if you're in exile, even if you can't see where he's moving, even if, even if you're way back at Abraham and you haven't gone through all the generations yet, even if you're just at the beginning of what God is doing, give God the benefit of believing and trusting that he is at work. That is what it means to wait faithfully to wait faithfully until the fullness of time has come for God to do a great work in and through us. See, God is leading history towards his own ends. He has a plan for the universe, and he invites us to participate in it, and sometimes that participation looks like waiting, and waiting and trusting that he's moving, and that when the time is right, he will move powerfully in our lives and through our lives. I want to uh, close by reading one verse from Psalm 27. And I want to th- think of this as sort of like a commissioning, as sort of like a benediction for us, a final word of encouragement, that in the, in the place where we're not quite sure, where we feel incomplete and insecure and in suspense, that God is still moving, that we can trust and continue to seek him faithfully and wait, and wait in faithfulness. I want to read this. This is a Psalm 27, verse 14. It says, wait for the Lord Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Let me read that again. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Wherever you're at, whether it feels like game over, or you feel unused, or you're wondering where God is in in the current circumstances, or where he's leading you, you can't quite see the end game yet, wait. Wait. And in the meantime, be strong. Be strong in his word. Be strong in the fellowship of believers. Be strong. Take heart. Find encouragement in each other, in the word, in prayer. Lean into the Lord and wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Take heart. Wait for the Lord. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this word. Thank you for the fact that uh, that you came in the first place. Thank you for the fact that you're coming again to set all things right and bring your kingdom in fullness and power. And I ask... I ask that in our lives, wherever we feel in suspense or incomplete, that we would wait faithfully, that we would lean in, that we would trust, we would listen, we would pray, we would read your word, and that we would wait patiently and faithfully for you, so that at the right time, when the the right time has come, you will come in and you will change our lives, you will move powerfully in our lives, and you will use our lives for your ends. We love you so much, Jesus, in your name. Amen.